Hey there, hunting family, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Tracks and Tackle, brought to you by Mensur Outdoors. I'm the Aero Eagle, your host, and today we're taking flight into the world of migratory bird hunting. In this episode, we're in for a special treat. Joining us is a true expert in the field, a seasoned waterfowl hunter and a champion duck caller, Jonathan Knopp. He's here to share his wealth of knowledge and experience, helping us explore the thrill and challenges of pursuing these magnificent creatures across their migratory routes. We'll be delving deep into gear, strategies, and unique experiences that define the art of migratory bird hunting. So whether you're a seasoned waterfowl enthusiast or just curious about this dynamic form of hunting, you're in for an incredible journey. Let's not wait any longer. With Jonathan's insights, we're ready to spread our wings and soar into the world of migratory bird hunting. Are you ready? Let's take flight. Right, so today we have a, a guest on the show, um, Jonathan Knopp, friend of mine who actually just we, we just were acquainted not too long ago through a mutual friend. Yep. and that's the way it works, right? When you <laughs> you run into one another, we're at, we're actually we have a mutual friend who um, has had a, their child was having their baby's birthday party. And, uh, you know, the guys are sitting around the table and we're just shooting the breeze. We start striking up this conversation about hunting and the outdoors. And we're like, yeah, all right, man, we're brothers now, right? <laughs> and uh, I think I've met you before on a couple of occasions, but we never had the chance to actually connect. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I was talking to Jonathan about, uh, you know, his experiences and he's got quite the resume. So um, just like most of you guys out there listening to this podcast, he started hunting from a very young age. So it's born in to his blood um, and you know when you get the itch as a teenager probably from about 16 to 21 he started to dedicate himself to waterfowl and uh, his pursuit of that that arena in the hunting world and um, you know so as a young man professionally guided for several years supported the startup of a couple of different guide services um, competitive goose and duck caller securing multiple top five finishes at state championships and uh, competing and calling competitions across the West Coast. Um, and some of your top finishes were first in the novice duck category, second in both state duck uh, and uh, state goose calling, and that was Washington State. Yep. And uh, so you've additionally, you've served as a consultant for several other guide services and very well respected in the hunting community. Uh, and I'm uh, really pleased to just be able to call him a friend more than an acquaintance. We're, we're building that relationship. We invited him to come on the podcast. So I just want to welcome uh, Jonathan to the to the podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and great just to spend more time getting to know you as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. When you when you connect with people um, that have like sort of the same passion, it's really easy to just carry on conversations and stuff. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen. So, yeah, basically what we're going to talk about in today's episode is uh, we're going to talk about migratory bird hunting because I think you have this expertise in that world and I certainly don't. I've done some um, 
I've done some duck hunting. I've like traveled and, and gone south and have had some really fun experiences. I see how easily you can get hooked on it. <laughs> um, it's a ton of fun. Just going to hunting camp. Period. You can have a lot of fun. Doesn't matter what yeah. you're hunting. But um, maybe maybe as we just get started, if you don't mind, uh, just give us a little bit of your journey into migratory bird hunting and tell us you know how you developed your passion for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny that this is something I've uh, had to put a lot of thought into because it's been so such a deep piece of my uh, life and my childhood for so long. I didn't necessarily know where it came from, and so I um, was thinking about this, and and you know, it occurred to me. I grew up. Uh, I come by hunting naturally, both sides of the family. So both sides of my family were uh, ranchers. Uh, one in North Idaho, uh, others in, in Eastern Washington, which is a, actually a semi-arid desert. And so my dad grew up farming and ranching um, on about a 7,000 acre farm and uh, loved the outdoors, loved hunting, loved fishing. Mm -hmm. loved, I mean, he shot, you know, the deer hunting was the big thing and coyotes and waterfowl and, and uh, small game. And, you know, and I just remember as a kid growing up, hearing these stories from him of, of uh, having what's called a pit blind uh, where, you know, it, it's buried underground, underground. It's, uh, the top of it is level with the surface of the ground and spring loaded doors. And he'd tell me these stories about geese coming in, landing and landing almost on top of his blind or a coyote sneaking up 20 feet away from him in his blind and popping out and shooting with the shotgun. And, and, uh, and so I, I, from a young age, I just remember hearing these stories. And so, so I, um, I was given probably a BB gun, you know, I don't remember. I probably was on seven or eight. And from that day on, I mean, I was outside shooting everything. Got I you started, started you know, right? Got me started. <laughs> and, and where I lived, I mean, the, we didn't we didn't really have many rabbits or squirrels. It was pretty much just uh, birds. Yeah. So I spent, I mean, hundreds of hours and tens of thousands of BBs probably <laughs> out there shooting at birds. And, and I think that's part of where that comes from. Um, moving on a little bit later, my uh, next oldest brother, um, when he went through Hunter's education around 14, uh, I, I, I couldn't, I was, uh, my, my parents wanted me to wait until I was 11, uh, uh, 14 as well or 13. And, uh, so I was 11 at the time and man, I, I would not let them leave without me. They, you know, go out duck hunting, go out, you know, small game hunting and stuff. And, and this one memory that just, I, is just impressed upon me that I believe is where my passion comes from is, it was probably that year, that November when I was about 11, there was a, there's a cornfield that's probably 70 yards from my parents' house, uh, due south, and that thing just got loaded full of ducks and geese. I mean, we're talking thousands of birds, and I don't use that as, a, as an exaggerated term. I mean, it was it was literally loaded. thousands, literally of birds. thousands. And so my dad tells my brother, "Hey, let's let's go, uh, um, let's go sneak out to the edge of the field. We have uh, irrigation canals." So they take water off the Columbia River and then run it along these uh, canals out to uh, out around fields. And that's what the sprinklers draw off of. So, it's, so we have canals surrounding the field. So mm -hmm. it's like, let's get in these canals. It's, we're going to sneak up. And they wouldn't let me go with them. But I just stood there in the window just watching this thing unfold. And they snuck out there and, and we were able to pop up. And, and uh, my brother shot the first round. He shot a goose, I think. And then, my, then the, they all flew up, you know, flushed up in the air. And, and my dad said, hey told me later, hey, hand me the shotgun. So my dad takes a shotgun, shoots once, hits a mallard hen, shoots twice, and hits two ducks with one shot. So mm -hmm. here my dad comes back. My brother has a goose. My dad has three ducks with two shots. And I was just like 
thought my dad was just like, you know, John Wayne. I mean, he's yeah. the coolest thing. That, I think that's the way that it is for a lot of us that like grow yeah. up and um, we have either older siblings or, uh, you know, our parents yeah. or our mentor, hunting mentors. Yeah. You know, we really do look up to them. Yeah. Because they're the ones that get you started. Yeah. You know, and part of the, the heart behind our show and why we started this podcast is to you know, we want to inspire people to help the next generation get into it because somebody invested into (laughs) our lives and got us interested in just being outside and doing outdoors type activity. So yeah, love that story. You know, we always look up to our, our our mentors and it's nice that that was your dad. All right. Well, Jonathan, tell me just a, a little bit, you know, I want to learn about migratory birds and the different types of, uh, bird. I mean, look, I know the, this is what I know, you know, the birds fly south for the for the winter, right? Yep, you know, yep. they want to get in that, that different climate when the cold temperatures set in, um, you know, but there are different species that migrate and uh, the hunting that goes along with that. I wasn't brought up around that. So if you can educate me and our listeners a little bit on, uh, you just provide an overview maybe on various mig- migratory bird species that are hunted. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, the, the, the basics of, of, you know, migratory bird species, uh, just a little overview is there's ducks are typically divided into two categories. You have what's called dabbling ducks or puddle ducks, and then you have diver ducks. So the difference is between whether, whether they dive underwater for food or whether they stay at the surface to skim. All so, right. yep. So under puddle ducks, uh, just giving you an overview, <laughs> you have the mallard, which is what most people think of when they think of a duck, they picture a green headed you know, duck with gray and brown on its back. And, um, and then, so you have, uh, under puddle ducks, you have mallards, gadwall, widgeon, teal, uh, you have green winged teal, blue winged teal, and cinnamon teal. You have, uh, widgeon, you have Eurasian widgeon, which are rarer. And then you have, um, northern shovelers. Uh, that, that's the majority of it. Uh, I guess there's also, uh, <laughs> wood ducks and black ducks. So in the very rare model ducks down in the south so um that's your that's the overview of puddle ducks as a general rule they they all surface feed on on plants and insects um so they don't they don't eat any fish and uh they don't eat any fish sometimes like crustaceans but that's a little bit more rare they prefer seeds and insects and then you have diving ducks who also don't feed on fish they dive underwater to eat seeds and insects and plants and um and so your diver ducks are like your buffle head redhead uh redheads canvas back um you have sea ducks kind of they're in there uh like harlequin scoter um eider <laughs> king eider common eider common golden eye borrows golden eye i mean you know the, the, the list, list goes, goes on, on right yeah <laughs> yep yep so so in your experience yeah. <laughs> like what's the what's the easiest duck to hunt versus the most difficult duck like is, oh does the goodness, type yeah. of duck matter i mean i imagine the little bit of uh hunting duck hunting yeah. that i've done yeah you know i always hear uh you know I hear stories about these teals. Yeah. You know, yep. and they, some of these ducks move pretty dang quick. Yep. They do. They do. So, I, you know, I would say in terms of hunting, this might sound, uh, <laughs> might seem kind of odd to some people, but probably the easiest duck to hunt is the mallard. I mean, there's more mallard decoys made. They have, um, uh, we have more, I mean, they're, they're one of the few ducks 
whose calls we can actually, you know, recreate well and actually have a conversation with, you know, and, and try to manipulate in their behavior to do different things. So I would say that the easiest by far are mallards. Um, the most difficult, I mean, when it comes to hunt, if you're talking about like, <laughs> I'm going to set out to intentionally hunt these, um, you end up getting into unpredictable duck species and and when it comes to I, I think that's how you'd separate it more the most predictable duck is probably mallard okay some some diver ducks might are pretty predictable but most predictable mallard the least predictable predictable is like a teal so yeah. you know because those things they come and they go and i know people like phil robertson and stuff like that they you know come out with teal calls and they, they try to call them i mean i've i've shot hundreds of teal i've called it lots of teal and i tell you what they they do what they want to do. Right. Know? So I, I would say not predictable deal. at all. No. <laughs> well, that's yeah. enjoyable. You know, when you don't want to go out and, and always, you know, like we have a plan. Yeah. You yep. know, but plan, we, things don't always go according to plan, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. And then with geese. Um, so the, the other, the two, well, so there's other migratory birds besides ducks and geese. I'm, I know the most about ducks and geese. There's also sandhill cranes, doves, you know, things like that. Um, but with geese, there's, there's, uh, you have Canada geese, you have a cack, a cackler, which is, um, looks just like a Canada, Canada goose, it's smaller, but it's uh, technically its own uh, species with its own subspecies. So with the Canada goose, you know, how much detail you want, but the Canada goose, you have, uh, what's called the uh, Western Canada goose. That's what we have where, where I am also called the, um, Hutchinson's, uh, goose, uh, and then you have the Atlantic goose, the interior goose. You have the lesser, uh, the lesser, and you have um, oh, there's one more that I'm, I'm I'm forgetting. Oh, the I think the giant. So you have you have about uh, about seven subspe seven species uh, subspecies six that you're really ever going to run into. And then with cacklers, you have um, you have the taverners, the Aleutian, the true cackler, and then you have. Um, Oh, the last one's name always always escapes me for some reason. Oh, Richardson. <laughs> so I just said to look, look at my notes briefly. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so, so the difference between cackling geese and, and Canada geese, they look the same. A cackler is about the size of a fat mallard. All right. So they look like a goose. They... Um, that's about where it ends. I mean, they, they sound so, kind of like a goose, but, I mean, they fly like a duck. They respond to calling very much like ducks. They fly in huge groups. Um... I've shot I've shot uh, lots of cacklers, but predominantly we have uh, Western Canada geese and Lesser Canada geese where I come from. So um, lessers are just like what it sounds like. They, they're they're smaller goose. They're about halfway between the. Um, I would say they're about three quarters the size of the Atlantic Canada geese that that we see here in Pennsylvania. About three quarters the size. And the Western Canada goose is. I mean, it's a good four or five inches taller than than them. So they're bigger out west for sure. Much bigger, yeah. And we get some giants too. That so. Um, there's four flyways in the, in the United States. So there's Pacific flyway, the central flyway, the Mississippi flyway and the Atlantic flyway and different, uh, based upon the green breeding grounds up North in the Arctic and in, in Alaska and Russia, where our birds come from, um, they, there's just a different proportion depending on breeding grounds. So we get a lot of bigger geese over on our side and here you get smaller geese, but sometimes you guys get more, you know, more geese and more smaller geese than we get. You know, fewer big geese. So. Yeah, I don't understand that. Like, I've never been taught any of this, so this is fascinating <laughs> sure. to me. Um, yeah. You know, so like understanding those flyways, like you know mm -hmm. the patterns, the migratory patterns. Yep. You know, and I know that um, <clears throat> I've gone down and uh, I've hunted uh, geese early December in Arkansas. <clears throat> yeah, and when you talk about 
not exaggerating thousands of birds yeah, in, yeah. in the water in the air <laughs> like you don't have to be a good shot you don't have to be in a, <laughs> like we've gone out i've seen guys that have never gone hunting before yeah. and we put them in a blind and uh you know with a, somebody that can call yep. and ducks are coming in yeah you know yep. and uh, that's how you get hooked you yeah, know when there's a little bit of action <laughs> in some of our other episodes we've talked about you know, getting that next generation excited about yeah. hunting or out fishing, outdoors, anything like that. And the key really is seeing activity. Absolutely. You know, so I was interviewing a guest a, a couple episodes ago and they were just saying like setting somebody in the deer blind, like out here in Pennsylvania in, in woodland country, um, you know, we sit and we wait, mm-hmm. you know, it's not spot and stalk like it is yep. out, out in the Midwest or in the Western States. Yep. And, um, you know, when you're a young guy, or if, even if you're just, you could be older and just getting into hunting, like it can be boring, yeah. you know, so you have to have an appreciation yeah. <laughs> for the anticipation of that. Uh, you know, we like to say 30 seconds of fun will make uh, an eight hour day for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So duck hunting is a ton of fun because yeah. there's activity when they're shooting, there's good shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what you said about the numbers is so true because with, um, well, so, uh, when you're in in a flyway and in a part of a flyway, so that so birds, I mean, they follow basins and rivers and you know geographical right. features, you know. So um, if you're in in their flyway where they want to be, I mean, you know, you'll be out hunting and and you will you won't stop seeing birds, you know, all day. Uh, so like if you're goose hunting, geese leave the roost and and fly, you know, from let's say an hour after shooting light to about noon or 11 30 in, in the morning and uh that's when they're coming out to feed and then they feed then they go back to the roost that, that evening and in the early season they they fly earlier they loaf you know they go back to loaf go out, out to feed come back but without getting too caught up in the details <laughs> right yes and so you see birds flying in the air though for the entire time so it's different than than deer because for that four hour window you're going to constantly have an opportunity to potentially, you know, have birds, you know, come just waiting for somebody to respond exactly. to that, you know, to that conversation that you're having with the duck call, right? Yep. Yep. And the flag and the decoy spread. I mean, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I sure. want to talk about conservation yeah. and ethics. Um, you know, certainly that's important to the hunting community. And uh, if you can, you know, just, you know, talk to us a little bit about, insights into efforts that are made to preserve bird populations and their habitats i know like um where i hunted you know you buy a duck stamp and that stamp goes you know the money goes to conservation efforts yeah um, in in that state so um i'm sure there's you can expound on that for us sure yeah absolutely yeah so um there's federal state um and then um i would say call it more uh public like organizations like um Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl, things like that, where mm-hmm. they they take the brunt of that conservation um, workload, uh, and yeah, uh, conservation is, is really really important right now. You know, um, we see this all across the flyways, especially here on the East Coast, where um, uh, one of the biggest issues here in the lower forty eight states w- that we see is is um, a reduced access to to land, not just to hunt, but but land that historically has been uh, uh, nesting habitat, you know, for right. for ducks and geese that's being taken over to build homes and develop and developments, or you know, even pollution, you know, it can be a big big issue in some some states where, uh, you know, I think of again Maryland, you know, some of these issues where um, where it, 
Maryland was the originator of commercial duck and goose hunting. It was where ton of waterways, from. yeah, a yeah. ton of wetlands, yeah, yep. That's where that's where this whole all of us who are duck and goose hunters, whether we know it or not, inherited <laughs> this from 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 the eastern shore, you know, and from Maryland and from you know even these uh, uh, here out out east and. Um, Sorry, all that to say, the, the biggest efforts that are being being done right now are uh, preserving preserving the uh, breeding habitat and uh, up up sorry in in the lower forty eight states and then up uh, north in Canada and uh, up in Alaska and areas where where they breed and yeah so I'd say the best thing that people can do to invest in conservation is really to get plugged into their local waterfowl chapter. Um, uh, so most states have a, a waterfowl association that they can join. Not to mention, I mean, uh, there, there's uh, Delta Waterfowl and Ducks Unlimited chapters. All, all, I mean, all, sure, all yeah. every state, you know, and they've, you know, it takes a lot of money to, to have a lot of sway, you know, yes. and we need lobbyists and we need, you know, um, money put into this. So uh, the, the biggest thing I think people can do is actively volunteer and support. One of the other things that I was thinking of was, going out and actually physically participating in the activities that go on. I mean, you know, they put out um, across nearly every organization, they'll put out duck boxes, they'll go, they'll clean areas, they'll go work on, uh, you know, on, on, on uh, preserves or mm-hmm. uh, yeah, waterfowl refuges and stuff like that. And there's a lot of opportunities for volunteer work. Um, yeah. If, if, if you look for it. So, yeah. And that's like outdoor activity too. Yeah. Right. So it's absolutely. not all about, Fishing, hunting, um, you know, scouting, etc. I mean, it doesn't it? There are tons of different things. You know, I just spent the weekend, um, you know, hiking. Yeah. You know, and just appreciating the beauty of the outdoors. Absolutely. You know, and getting out. So, like, to, from a conservation perspective, yep. if you can volunteer, if you can get outside, yeah. you're doing something you're, to give back. You yep. know, and uh, that really adds up. So that leads me into like my next. I guess we'll parlay into my next question or thing that I'd love to hear your take sure, on yeah. is, um, you know, hunting ethics <laughs> and how like ethical hunting. What can we do yeah. as hunters when we're hunting migratory birds like ducks and geese? Yeah. That. Um, you know, it helps to preserve bird population and their yeah. habitat as well. So, yeah. um, you know, not certainly not destroying the habitat yeah. and uh, not overtaking the population because you want that population yeah. to to be stable. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. So, with water uh, with migratory waterfowl, I'd say that there's less um, ethical considerations that ha- have to be made. To some extent, uh, for preserving habitat, you know, I would talk about uh, not damaging habitat, you know, preserving habitat. What's um, what's unique, I think, about waterfowl is that, uh, um, you know, with deer and other animals, they tend to stay within their same geographical area. So if you're damaging, uh, you know, even pheasant deer habitat, right. that's the habitat they're in year-round, yeah. you know, more or less. Waterfowl, though... Um, they they breed up north where they aren't being hunted or pressured other than natural predators and so when we encounter them on their migratory flight downwards uh, or down south I'm sorry uh, southwards they um, there's not a lot that we do that, that can damage the habitat typically we're hunting grasses that are dead you know and in in lakes and fields and things like that and I think the ethical consideration comes uh, uh, lies more in um, following laws and regulations, you know, that are put there in place to protect waterfowl uh, populations. You know, there's a bag limit for a reason, you know, right. it's to ensure that 
that uh, that not too many birds are harvested, but also that enough birds are harvested. You know, we don't want overpopulation disease that will kill and, and do far, wreak far more havoc on the ecosystem sometimes than... Yeah, and that's uh, kind of a universal, you know, absolutely. you know, it's important that the herd does, or in this case the flock, yeah. gets um, thinned out a little yep. bit, you know, but uh, certainly we don't want to overhunt as well. So it's finding that balance. Yeah. Nature takes care of itself to some degree yep. if we don't. But um, this is all part of conservation and why, why hunting is so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that, um, yeah, so I think with these ethical considerations, um, the harvesting of animals legally uh, is important too. I mean, you know, areas of contention in uh, <laughs> areas of contention in waterfowl are like are baiting. Um, baiting is illegal, but we have um, flood, <laughs> there's always a but. There's always right? a but. Yeah, there's a. A lot of, especially, you see this in the Midwest. I mean, we have plenty of it where I, where I come from, too. But um, there's a lot of flooded corn and flooded fields. And yeah. right now, federally right. under under you know under law, you legally um, you can you can flood a standing field that has not been harvested, mm-hmm. flood it, hunt it. It's not considered baiting, you know. Um, but you know, if if you go and uh, <laughs> this is where the contention contentious part is, if you harvest the field first and flood it, you can sometimes have issues from the state. Or if you if you come through harvest a cornfield and you have a corn spill, you can't hunt that field until that until that spill cleaned, cleaned up. up and been cleaned for two weeks, right? So, so, so those are some of some of the things that are under debate right now. Um, Savvy hunters will yeah. always find a way. They will, you they know, will. to uh, you know work yeah. the system. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's part of the ethical piece of this too. Yeah, you know, we're Absolutely. we're uh, wanting to. It's not just the the harvesting of the animal, but it's the conservation of the animal and the species as well well hunting family that's going to wrap us up for this episode of tracks and tackle we had to make the decision of whether to let this interview run in its entirety and uh, what we ultimately decided is we're going to carve this migratory bird uh, chat session into three separate episodes so you just listen to part one we will be back next week with part two a uh, big thank you to Jonathan for being an invaluable part of this journey and helping us understand the importance of responsible hunting practices and the essential role that hunters play in conserving our precious wetlands and waterfall habitats. With that said, our adventure will not be over. Next week, we're going to get into the nitty gritty. We're going to be talking gear, strategies, and techniques that every waterfowl enthusiast should know. So stay tuned for more exciting and informative content as we continue our exploration of migratory bird hunting. And as always, a heartfelt thank you to our loyal listeners. Your support and enthusiasm fuel our passion for sharing the outdoor experience. If you haven't already, Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a single wing beat of our upcoming episodes. And for now, remember to cherish your hunting experiences, respect wild places, and keep the spirit of conservation alive.